You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. episode, I spoke to A.M. Holmes. A.M. is the author of the novels May We Be Forgiven, which won the Women's Prize in 2013, This Book Will Save Your Life, Music for Torching, The End of Alice, In a Country of Mothers, and Jack. Also three collections of short stories and the highly acclaimed memoir The Mistress's Daughter, as well as the travel memoir Los Angeles. A Washington, D.C. native, she currently teaches at Princeton University and lives in New York City. A.M.'s new novel, The Unfolding, is out now from Granta Books and is available in all good bookshops. When we spoke, A.M. and I talked about what would have happened if an early mentor had encouraged her to study medicine and she'd gone on to become a doctor. Along the way, we discussed the AIDS epidemic, being pen pals with Pete Townsend, and the importance of being truly seen, both in medicine and in life. Hi, A.M. Hello. Thank you so much for being here on My Unlived Life. Thank you for having me. We're in a we're in an actual real studio, which is just very, very exciting for me. Um, it's nice. I feel like we should be cutting an album. <laughs> <laughs> the sad thing about it is that you can see all of my scratchy notes and neither of us gets to wear our slippers, but I think that's okay. Plus, I can't read upside down, so I think we're okay. But we are here, obviously, because of the publication of your new novel, The Unfolding. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, your book takes as its starting point, the obviously, the election of 2008. And it does this amazing and meticulous work of moving step by step, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, through the sort of events which follow and follows a set of characters who are sort of trying to figure out what to do in the aftermath. And I'm going to make an incredibly spurious link here and say that in a way, this is kind of what we do on the podcast. We're going to go back to a moment for you or a sort of general period of time. And we're going to try to go sort of step by step uh, in a in a direction, uh, which is not the direction that your life actually took. Um, but before we get to that, I would be very grateful if you would just say a few words about your new novel. Sure. So I would say the unfolding is a sort of a braided narrative that, on the one hand, tracks um, the experience of a man known as the big guy who is upset when his candidate, John McCain, loses to Barack Obama and sets about pulling together a cohort of men, he calls the forever men, who are determined to reclaim their version of democracy. And it really sort of forensically foretells what happened when Trump became president and where we are, gets us to where we are now. And at the same time, his family, his daughter, Megan, votes for the first time and begins to have a kind of coming to consciousness of who she expects to become as a, as a young woman in this world. And his wife, Charlotte, 
is dealing with the history of family secrets and her alcoholism. And so as as the big man and his friends sort of plot to reclaim their vision of America, his family is coming apart. And yet in their coming apart, they come to deeper truths of attachment and identity and and really, you know, what the future of America might be. Thank you for that so much. It is it is it's an extraordinary journey and it has your signature just extreme precision in every single word. So it was just a joy to read and I'm sure everyone else will think so too. I think we should get straight in to your path because it's a, it's an interesting it's a slightly different uh, jumping off point than we normally have. Oftentimes in this podcast, we have we have a moment, a moment where somebody turned left and they didn't turn right. Um, and we sort of go back and we trace. But you have a sort of a general question around what might have happened if you'd pursued a different uh, sort of vocation, I guess. But I also really liked when we were speaking, um, you said something about, or we were discussing the fact that what did you say? You said you said the, the window doesn't ever really close on some of these decisions, right? I think that the things that we are drawn to or compelled by mostly don't go away, even if we didn't sort of pursue them or take the, the firm left or right turn. Um, so yes, I, absolutely for me, the things that I was interested in remain part of my work and part of my life and part of how I, literally how I live. So I want to take us back to... Um, this incredible uh, image that you painted for me the last time we spoke, which is basically you as a teenager growing up and in the evenings, I don't know if you were also going out and partying or doing other sort of teenager things, but mainly you appeared to be spending your evenings in the National Medical Archives in D.C. Is that correct? Well, I, yes. I mean, I would go, so the actual, the National Medical Library is actually in Bethesda, Maryland, which is Ah. near where I lived. And I think it was once I had my license. So, you know, at 16, other people, I'm sure, were out partying and doing things. And I would literally drive my mother's, you know, 1965 Pontiac to the National Medical Library, um, which was a very sort of modernist building right by NIH and the Walter Reed Army Medical Center and the Naval Hospital and Park. And you had to request the documents or the books or the articles you wanted. And I would just ask for various journals and so on and sit there reading all about medicine. I was always very, very obsessed by medical procedures, by medicine, by the history and evolution of all of it. I think that medicine itself is a, is not just a science, but it is actually an art and a craft, the, the good practice of it. Say more about that. What do you mean? Um, well, I think that, that the way doctors are trained, um, they're not trained to listen they're trained that any constellation of symptoms can only be one thing because you're supposed to sort of consolidate the symptoms to know that there's one ailment, which isn't always true. Um, and they don't really look at the whole person. Um, and I think that the doctors who are really good at what they do are able to sort of extract from a narrative and, and, and synthesize information and then, you know, come up with a, a more accurate diagnosis. Absolutely. And you, so we are, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to see what might have happened if instead of going sure. down the writer path, you had become a doctor. But part of the reason you wanted to explore this is because you, as you say, I you, practice without a license. You practice, I mean, <laughs> no, you know, not really, but yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of how you've described it. You're sort of a, a self-appointed sort of citizen doctor a little bit. 
Importantly, I'm not self-appointed, which ah. is the better part. Um, I've been appointed by a, 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 my peers. Um, so, yes, I am the person that people call and go, what's wrong with me or what do I do? I'm like, well, what's going on and how long? You know, all the stuff. So, yes. And this is all because just of a of a fascination with medicine that started when you were really young. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Okay. So you're a teenager. You're at the National Medical Library. You're doing all of this reading. You then go to university um, or multiple universities. Exactly. What happened there? I would say so. so many things happened. So number one, I am a teenager who has learning disabilities. So I am, I mean, I don't even know what the terms then were because they didn't have good terms for it, but it's, but sort of dyslexic. My handwriting is illegible, uh, which would make me a good doctor technically. Um, and I also had just many other almost like school phobia. I was not good at going to school um, and I was already writing and so on. And so for me, going sort of down the path towards medicine, um, I mean, nobody even thought it was possible. And I remember you and I talked a little bit about what does it take to make those decisions sometimes. And and the first thing that it takes, and I know this now as a professor and someone who spends a lot of time teaching people, is someone else believing that it could happen, that you could accomplish that thing. Um, and I don't think anyone believed that I could accomplish much of anything. I think we talk a lot now with sort of wellness culture and self-help culture about loving yourself and finding your, you know, knowing what you are, what your needs are. But you kind of, it's very difficult to have that if you don't have someone reflecting that back at you at a young age and affirming that it's okay for you to be who you are and explore what you need to explore and all of that, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because when you look at whether it's, you know, families of doctors, families of writers, often there is more than one in a family. And that's in part because people think, oh, I know how to do that, or that's we, we approve of that profession or that path. We're going to get to your path, but I just there's a couple of things I wanted to stop on. And the other thing was you saying that you weren't good at school, but what it sounds like is you were really good at self-educating, right? If you're going to the National Medical Library. Also, you mentioned this amazing thing, which I must ensure that we talk about, which is the way that you wrote letters. Oh, absolutely. Sure to people you wanted to learn from. Can yeah. you say something about that? Because I love this. Well, I was always, you know, strangely just a huge fan of libraries, right? So that's <laughs> libraries to me are both the place, obviously, where information and books and history are all held. But they also had reference sections. And I love a reference section. And somehow this one library near where I grew up had all of the phone books, which I don't even know if there are phone books anymore, for all the states in the country. And as a weirdo, I used to just go through the phone books and look up people's names. And you know, this is in the mid-late 1970s. And it was shocking to me. Okay, I did focus a lot on the New York phone book. How many people's names, addresses, and phone numbers were listed, meaning by well-known people? And it wasn't that I was obsessed with celebrities, but if I wanted to write to somebody, it felt safer to write to somebody who I knew who they were and what their work was rather than just to some random person. But the truth of it all was I was desperate to make contact with those outside of my sort of known world. Um, and so, yeah, I used to write letters to people, and it would be like the filmmaker John Sayles, Pete Townsend, you know, the guitarist for The Who. Um, they were all wonderful correspondents. And, you know, I wrote to them not like, oh, I think you're so great or you're so cute or whatever. I wrote like, you know, today at school, like Annabelle was mean to me. 
um, or, you know, so-and-so just doesn't understand. And so they wrote back, you know, very, very thoughtful letters about my early writing, about all the things I was interested in. It was cool. And it went on for years. Do you still have the letters? Of course I have the letters. (laughs) When do we get to see the letters published? They sound amazing. No time soon. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Worse worse yet, they have my letters, let's be honest. What was this thing about wanting to get outside of your known world, do you think? It's such an interesting phrase. You know, so I grew up, I'm adopted, and I grew up in a family where a child had died, which I'm sure contributes to my love of medicine or my obsession with, you know, getting it right. Um, And I think the the house was a house filled with grief. I mean, it was just like living in a Eugene O'Neill play. And so the question Mm. is, how do you get out of one world and into another? Um, And I used to read tons of biographies and just try to learn how people lived and what people did and kind of, you know, what hope and possibility were, uh, because there wasn't a big sense of that, certainly when I was little. And we talked about the fact that being adopted sort of inherently makes you think about other lives because there is... And there's a quite literal other life that yes, could happen. Yes, li- totally a life not lived. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's see let's see where you go on your medical path, shall we? Okay. Do you have any symptoms? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. I literally. So as a result of this, well, what you say, your the dyslexia and the sort of sort of not sort of being good at school, as it were. You try university, but you kind of bop around a little bit. Is that a safe way, fair way to put it? Yes. I mean, I went, you know, I just wasn't, um, I don't know what I was. I went to University of Maryland briefly, but I my classes were a mile from the parking lot to the class, and that oh. seemed too far at the time. And so I sat in the student union just reading and eating cheese doodles uh, for a while, <laughs> and then I just stopped doing any of that. And then, yeah, I went progressively. I went to film school and then I went to art school and I was always writing. I had already started writing and then ultimately sort of went to another school and began studying writing. But also I took business law because I secretly loved that. And yeah, and I avoided the sciences, I think, because the sense was you had to be good at math in a way that I wasn't naturally and also... Um, yeah, there was just no sense that people thought, oh, you could actually do this or, more importantly, be good at doing it. So actually, I think what we need is we need to find you a person who can affirm that you were good at these things or certainly that you were capable of doing something as intensive as studying the sciences. Shall we... Is there anyone that you can think of, like around sort of high school or sort of early university time, that you might have come into contact with if it was a guidance counselor or a... So really what happened was my my guidance counselors and my mentors were writers, mm. but they were invisible mentors. So, you know, you read somebody's book and they're like, all of a sudden, they're your invisible mentor. Um, and I did always read, actually books besides in the library about medicine and so on. But I also, because of my sort of family and so on. I read, you know, about being a doctor in Vietnam and, and you know, military <laughs> war medicine, which is not really the same. Um, so, yes, if there if there would have been a mentor, who what kind of a person would it be? I would say it would be somebody who worked like at the National Institute of Health, which is our big sort of both experimental and sort of, you know, think tank study world 
for medicine that was right near where I grew up. And we used to go as kids. And the people who worked there weren't practicing doctors, but they were scientists studying things. And they would say, oh, we have a new electron microscope. Would you like to come and see it? And I was like, yes. Um, Because I (laughs) I loved all of that. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's let's find you a let's find you a sure. medical mentor. So, National Institute of Health. You're still in high school. Yes. Okay. Will you find a someone? Who is it? Man or woman? I don't know if it matters, but let's let's identify. I'll take them. A, I'll take a man. Yeah. They were helpful. <laughs> yes, and there were more men. I mean, the truth is, there yes. weren't that many women doing that at the point. That yes. point. Okay. So you've got a sort of benevolent scientist who notices your interest. Um, and kind of takes you under his wing. And what does that mean? Does he sort of show you more stuff? Does he kind of encourage you to study more? I think that already I have to make a difficult decision because am I going to be a psychiatrist (gasps) or am I going to be like a primary care doctor? Well, do you have to decide that now? You're in high school. No, I don't, but I feel the pressure of it already. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. The question in the background is general health or or psychiatry. I'm going to take Anthony Fauci, actually, as my mentor. yes. In all seriousness, Anthony Fauci was there at the time. Um, okay, so <laughs> Anthony Fauci is your mentor. Yes. This is great. Um, uh, you're going to finish up high school. You're so now you're what? You're you're going back and forth to the National Institute of Health. You're, yes, where I'm shadowing Anthony Fauci. You're shadowing Anthony, yes. Anthony Fauci, and he is just showing you the ropes, basically. What are you learning with him? Let's do that. Well, it's interesting because this is also, again, looking at, at history, this is also just before the AIDS epidemic, right? Which Anthony Fauci was sort what of... What year are we in? Well, we're, we're probably, when I'm a senior in high school, it's 1979. Okay. Um, yeah, so we're looking at everything from what's literally on the horizon of infectious disease, which is, we don't know entirely, Um there could be a pandemic coming at some point in the far future. No, that would never, ever happen. That would never happen, no. no. But Anthony Fauci is um, working at the National Institute of Health. I don't know what year he started. And um, I would say he is definitely both practicing medicine and doing research. And so I would say let's put him in immunology and infectious disease. That seems like a good place. But now we're actually making things up because we don't really know what Fauci was doing then. We're a thousand percent we're making thousand things percent, up. That is what clear. we want to be doing. Um, and I think I'm doing what's called shadowing, which means just walking behind somebody wearing a white coat, going, oh, and not saying anything, which is very difficult for me <laughs> because I already have opinions about things. Um, and I think what's interesting, what's happening because of the kind of work that he's doing at the National Institute of Health, it's a combination of the actual sort of study and practice of medicine, but also already looking at the shape of policy and administration and the sort of the... the intellectual and social cultural aspects of medicine. I made that up. Yeah. It sounds like a really excellent course yeah. of study. But that's, I mean, it's about as relevant and as necessary as you can get when you're in the right. I mean, looking at this is it's sort of everything right now. Right. But we don't know that yet. No, we do not. But you're, you know, you And I'm still like having a... trouble getting the stethoscope to work in the way that I think it's supposed to work. I don't hear the breath sounds and lungs the way I think I should. <laughs> can he help with that? Surely somebody can help with that. They can try to talk you through it a little bit. But, you know, the stethoscope has two sides and it listens to two different things. So, Tino, I've never known which because it's the, you have the small side and the big side. Yes. What do they do? I didn't Doctor. go that day. I know. I don't know either. Okay, fine. Well, well maybe But you'll there learn. is. It's, it's called the bell and the something else. I know. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting. Yep. 
Um, okay, how long do you stay doing this? I think I'm doing it over the course of um, 11th to 12th grade. Uh, I still am smoking, though, <laughs> when, not when I'm at NH, and also not when there's oxygen in use, as you know. No, that's bad. You don't bad. want to blow things up. No. Um, so I'm doing it for a year, and then I guess I have to decide what I'm going to do about school. And so in this in this scenario, I my grades have really improved. And um, uh, Fauci's like, you know, have you thought about medicine? And I say, well, I always think about medicine, but where would <laughs> someone like me go to study medicine? I guess I would go to like Johns Hopkins, you know, yeah. because I think what's interesting also about Johns Hopkins is, and this is true, Johns Hopkins, obviously in Baltimore, Maryland, is an incredibly good medical school, but it also has a really good creative writing program. Uh-oh. Right? So oh. I'm still secretly myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's I'm able allowed. to do both. And and I don't know that there is the blossoming of a world called narrative medicine, which is all about how people tell stories about illness and medicine and so on. What do you mean by that, how people tell stories about illness? There is a program actually at Columbia University called Narrative Medicine. And what people noticed was everything from the way the doctors listen to stories, they're not extracting the right threads from it. So that's one piece is teaching doctors how, how to listen and actually understand that if a person starts talking, say, about their aunt while they're in you know, having a, a checkup for stomach pain, it may be related in the sense that what happened with your aunt? Well, she died of, you know, colon cancer at 40 uh. or whatever. So it's it's picking up the cues in the way each person tells their story and what the connections or histories might be. Um, and then also the, the way that people obviously write and talk about their own medical histories. It's pretty interesting stuff. Um it's fascinating. I know. Who knew? <laughs> so uh, at Hopkins, I'm studying sciences, um, but I'm also doing creative writing because I like to. Um, and I'm toggling between the two. And each side would have you believe that you cannot do both. But we know historically that there are quite a number of doctor writers. I mean, there was in, in our generation, there's Ethan Kanan, who studied medicine and then didn't practice. And then obviously there are people like... Um, who was it? The the guy who lived, the poet who lived in New Jersey. Oh, was it William Carlos Williams was a doctor? He was. Um, yes. So you're, you're toggling and you're holding yes. this idea that you can be multiple things, which I really like the idea. And you, obviously this is your, this is kind of what we started this conversation with, is the idea that one can be multiple things. And I do think sometimes, I know when I was younger, I felt quite a lot of pressure to be a thing. Well, I will say I think that the world around us has now changed because definitely that you had to, when, when we were younger, you had to be a thing. You had mm. to pick a thing and be the thing. And then now, you know, even as, as a successful novelist, people go, well, what else are you doing? And God, now do they the, really? We, yes. But now we live in the world of what they call the multi-hyphenate, right? Yeah. So you're not just a writer. You're a writer, actor, director. You're a writer brain surgeon, you know, political pundit. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. And I think had we known when we were younger that, that one could actually do that and it wasn't necessarily a diminishment of one or the other, um, more opportunity might have presented itself. Yeah. Well, and also there's, there's that, there was that sort of shift in research around the brain, wasn't there, where, you know, remember you had Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours thing, yes. which was that you had to focus on one thing for like forever and be good at the thing. 
And then they kind of shifted, and it actually turns out that if you – this is extremely, like, generalized, low level. Yeah. I'm sure you know this better than I do. But that actually doing multiple things is actually really, really good for creativity because one – it, you know, they, the different synapses in your brain spark off against each other. So if you are a writer and a political pundit, and a, you yes. know, those things kind of bounce off each other a little bit. There's actually, this is a digression, but it's an important one. It's important um, to There is a um, scientist who teaches at Princeton University where I teach, Paul Steinhardt. And he wrote a book called The Second Kind of Impossible. He's a, I think he's probably like a physicist. And the idea was there are two kinds of impossible. Something is one kind of impossible because it is impossible. The second kind of impossible is impossible because this has not yet been done. Hmm. And Paul Steinhardt discovered a new kind of matter. But what allowed him to believe that he could discover a new kind of matter came out of a Kurt Vonnegut novel. Hmm. And so that's, to me, absolutely both proof and, a, and an illustration of the way in which sometimes the creative connections, the expansive sort of nature of creative thinking, creative work, art, music, film, whatever it might be, writing, allows even even the scientific mind, um, which tends to want to narrow and organize and categorize, to expand and accommodate a new larger thought. So let's keep going. So you're 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 toggling. You're doing your sciences. You're how about what's kind of what's sort of outside of school life like? Are you living in what? What do they do to Johns Hopkins? Are you in dorms? Are you in an apartment? You know, I happen to be living in John Waters' basement. Uh, oh. John Waters, the filmmaker, because he lives in Baltimore, and I don't really like dormitory life. I feel like uncomfortable. I don't shower with other people. I don't know. <laughs> I like to think that I could make some terrible joke, but it just gives me it gives me the creeps. So, um, through a friend of a friend of a friend, I happen to know John Waters, and he happens to have an empty basement apartment. And I will say, I'm scared of the basement apartment, so pretty quickly I move upstairs because I'm like, I'm sorry, John, I can't stay in your basement. I don't like to be home alone, and it's creepy down there. Um, so I'm living in John Waters' house in Baltimore. How nice. Yeah. Okay. Are you guys hanging out a lot, or are you sort of like ships in the night? He's got a thing going. You've got a thing going. Well, you know, John is very, um, and this is true because I know him, but he is he is a huge reader, so he has an incredibly good book collection. Um, and so I, I cook some meals sort of in exchange for my housing. And But John is also, he's writing, he's making movies, he's very busy. Uh, and he has an odd collection of friends. And, of course, they like to come and tell me because they know I'm a student and they know I'm interested in medicine. They tell me their problems, ah. both physical and mental, which are substantial. Mm. Yeah, so that's happening. So I'm living in his house, yes. So you've got a kind of unofficial... Um, it's already starting. It's starting. Yes. Your practice exactly. is My like practice gearing is up. Bl- blossoming already. <laughs> All right. Um, and then uh, you, you're going to keep going. How about? How about... Hang on. Other friends, or is this taking up most of your time? It's mostly taking up my time, yeah. and, and you know, I somehow one of the things that's interesting is no matter what, I'm slightly different from some of the other students who are pursuing this track, which makes me feel a little bit isolated. I'm not a great note taker. I'm not a you know, I I like to study, I like to read, but I, I I they allow me and they include me in their study groups, but I don't always go. Um, I prefer hanging out with the fringe characters uh, and so on. But I also do get a job pretty early on, which is that I work in the emergency room. Again, I don't, I'm not a doctor yet, but I 
I uh, welcome people. I'm a receptionist. Maybe I just pass out graham crackers and juice in the waiting area. <laughs> All right, juice and cookies. You have the juice and cookies. <laughs> yeah. All right, fine. I'm so glad we found you a job. Exactly. Thank you. I was, I'm so relieved to have some place to go in the evenings. Yeah. So I spend my I spend my evenings in the emergency room, and every now and then like, I'll be saying, you know, that gunshot wound over there looks serious. I think we better get that person in sooner rather than later. And they go, ah, oh, yes, thank you so <clears throat> much. Like, oh, oh, thank you. Noticed. You should be a doctor. <laughs> Actually, it's an interesting two interesting points there. The one is obviously with your dyslexia and with the fact that you don't like taking notes and all of those things. Like, how are you actually doing? How's studying going? Aside from the fact that you know you feel a bit weird in the gr- in the study group, it's going actually pretty well. Okay, I mean, great. I I tend I I have a natural. <laughs> affinity and ability. And I, I spot things like, oh, you know, the man with the hand injury, do you realize he's carrying his fingers in the other hand? And they're like, no, I hadn't noticed. So I'm doing well. I'm well liked. Uh, Good. I have a wild sense of humor, which tends to even comfort people during their darkest moments. Oh, yes. I bet your bedside manner is great, actually. It is. Good. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Um, how about the creative writing classes? Well, I'm getting lots of material. So, you know, part of the thing, too, being in Baltimore, I mean, there's a very diverse population. And so I'm getting all kinds of stories. And also, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, I believe, was in Baltimore. Long dead by then. Quite dead at that point. But I can recite The Raven to any patient who needs to hear a dark and scary poem. Not a good idea. Super uplifting. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, So you're getting lots of material for your writing. Or do you have time to do your creative writing stuff? You know, I'm not a big sleeper. So, okay. I mean, that's that's thing number one. And Still I'm also, now. You're not a big sleeper now. Not a big sleeper. And also I have this one, one of my weird special powers is that when awakened at odd hours, I'm immediately awake. So I'm not, I'm not a person who is by nature ever groggy. And that's really coming in as a plus. Oh. Um, because if, if anybody needs something or I have to do something, I'm just wide awake. So no matter what, you just like you're up and then you're up. That feels like a superpower. I think it's probably called hypervigilance, and it's probably really not good for my health. <laughs> yes, no. Well, let's let we could tell another. We could change the narrative, and we could say it's really good. It just means that you're sort of, I don't know, transitioning seamlessly from <laughs> sleeping to waking. Isn't that delightful? Yes. Um, okay. Well, so this obviously serves you really well studying. Yes. Um, and at some point, you're going to graduate. Am I going to graduate undergraduate school? Am undergraduate. I graduate? Oh, so, okay. We're still, yeah, yeah. Yes. I think we need to, I think it's about okay. time to get a little serious about okay. something. So sure. I think, don't you think? Yes. And I think I would like to stay at Hopkins still. Okay. Um, I, I think it, I, I've, I've met people. I have a community. I'm living with John Waters. And there's a, there's a whole world there that needs my help. Yes, they do. They really yes, do they need do. your help. And then we're now, we're now sort of early 80s, right? So right. sort of 83, 80. Right. So... AIDS pandemic is... Right. So I was going to say there's something really serious and complicated coming. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. All right. Right. So you um, you start med school at Johns Hopkins. Exactly. You stay living with John? Yeah, I am still living in John's um, house. Uh, I think I'll probably move out soon. Um, but what's interesting, too, is that the beginning of the AIDS pandemic, no one really knows what's happening. And they know that at some point there's the word sort of getting out that there is some kind of gay disease. Mm. And most people probably don't remember that when the AIDS epidemic started, the the gay men who got it died very quickly and, and kind of really horrible deaths. And there was a lot of prejudice and bias. So it was exceptionally hard for them to get health care. Um, it was not good, you know. 
yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so you're, as a med student, how much of this are you seeing via school? How much of you are just, of it, are you just absorbing in the sort of air? Well, I will say, you know, so um, sort of the two populations that were most affected at that point in time by the AIDS epidemic were gay men mm. and IV drug users. Also somewhat a population of men who also had sex with men but had female partners as well and ultimately sometimes gave HIV to their female partners. So living and working in Baltimore, I begin to see this. Um, And I also see, on the one hand, the fear of other people in the healthcare profession in terms of how to protect oneself from it. There is a sense that this disease is very contagious. Mm -hmm. We know that it's spread by bodily fluids. Um, the patients who are coming in have, you know, have, one of the symptoms is they have terrible diarrhea, and so people are very afraid of that. Um, they have Kaposi sarcoma, so they have, you know, sores on their skin. Um, they have, you know, they, they're wasting, literally, so they, you know, one of the things is they can't absorb nutrition. And it's really scary and intense. And I will say, I, as both a young med student and a compassionate person, I'm somewhat drawn to this population, and so I am somebody who will volunteer to take care of them. I also, on the side, will do things like bring soup or things to people's houses mm-hmm. um, and, and stuff like that. Because also when people, if they get out of the hospital, they have a bad kind of pneumonia and they're really weak. And, and there's not a lot of healthcare sort of supports at that point in time. Right, and not a, a, a sort of set up for bringing things to people's homes and all that sort of yes. thing. Yes. Which, of course, I think one thing that we saw in our recent pandemic was, um, I think, and I think this was really aided by technology, the way in which people who couldn't stay home, I felt like I felt like everybody sort of really was pitching in and, you know, dropping things on people's doors and, you know, doing doing grocery shopping for people and all that sort of thing. And, and you're saying we, we didn't see there was, that. There was absolutely none of that. And also, you know, what was interesting about it is that it was a time when being gay was not acceptable. So a lot of people who had AIDS were is either not out to their families or not in touch with the families. And so they really were somewhat isolated. And then also either their partners or other people in their community, it was terrifying. Mm. Um, People were really scared. And there was, you know, I mean, I would say, you know, practice that verged on real malpractice in terms of how people were treated. And so, yeah, I am I am actively working in that community, um, both in my time you know, at the hospital, um, but also with my free time. Um, and it's scary and upsetting. And it causes me, actually, I will say, it causes me both to question how I want to practice medicine and to be both afraid in terms of what is the impact of this on my mental health and how sustainable is it? Okay. Well, let's think about that a little bit. What? Yeah. what how is it? I mean, what is it? Do you have any other support? Because obviously you have your John Waters social circle. Right. Your family's not far if they're in Bethesda. My family's not far, um, but they also, I would say, don't really have a strong sense of how and why this is the thing I want to do. I mean, they're somewhat supportive, but it, they're just, it's not, you know, it's not their thing. You know, the idea is sort of like my mother will say, well, just be careful, just protect yourself, and so on. And I think on the one hand, I feel falsely protected because I think, well, I'm not in the population and I'm not engaging in the behaviors that would give me this disease. 
On the other hand, you know, we know that if you come in contact with any of these bodily fluids, you could get it. I mean, you know, if you get blood in your eye, if you Mm. get whatever. So it's complicated. But I feel like what it also teaches me is that dignity and compassion, you know, override um, concern for the self in some ways. And it's also important because I would say there's a spiritual awakening with some of this too, which is the idea of what kind of person am I and who do I want to be? And so I don't want to uh, move into the practice of medicine that is purely scientific. I am interested in who this person is. What is their story? And part of the thing is when you have these you know, young men who are dying who have no one to tell their stories to, I am listening to those stories. And I am thinking a lot about that. Um, are you writing them down? Yes, I absolutely am writing them down. This is a very uh, sort of specific development of the self that feels really molded by the life we put you in. And I'm curious as to what's going on in the real world because in, in or in your real life um, because uh, at this point in your real life you weren't in medical school. You were at Iowa? I wasn't quite at Iowa yet. So I was probably in the same time period – just finishing my fifth college, fifth. Uh, which would have been Sarah Lawrence, and I had already finished my first novel, had already had a play produced. Um, you did your first novel what, while you were bouncing from university I did, to university. Yeah. Which nice. is a novel, Jack, about a kid whose dad is gay, and, and so that also predated the AIDS crisis and so on. Ah. Um, yep. Yeah. And then um, what else was happening in reality? Then I was working at Random House for a year, which I loved. Um, In New York? mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Doing what? Editorial? I was an editorial assistant. (gasps) And I just loved it, loved it. And it's funny because I really wanted to learn how publishing worked as an industry. And people kept saying to me, oh, if you want to be a writer, do not work in publishing. And I thought, no, no, no. I I need to see how this works. I want to know from the inside out how this industry, you know, does what it does. Okay, so you're working with... You're working with these AIDS patients. You're uh, writing down their stories. Right. It's phenomenal. You're not sleeping at all, basically. <laughs> no. That's fine. No. My two passions at that point in time are sort of the social care of the AIDS patients, because obviously I'm not a doctor yet. And mm. importantly, we don't really know yet what the elements and functions of this disease are or, or how it operates and so on. Uh Baltimore is also a shock trauma hospital, and that was also a big thing. There was the progression of development of trauma centers, right? And so certain hospitals became designated trauma centers, and it was where you took, you know, the most seriously injured people. So that is my sort of my one of my jobs is that I am now actually working because I had been the receptionist, as you probably remember, mm, indeed. and, a, and a, the cookie lady in the emergency room. But now I actually am working more actively in the emergency room. Um, helping move patients, helping take care of them, okay. um, and learning a lot about that, I would say. And I'm torn because on the one hand, I really like um, emergency medicine. I like the uh, fact that you have to make decisions quickly and see what's happening quickly and be able to kind of, you know, have a sense, too, of all the various systems involved, you know, in a person's body and so on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm torn between that and, again, sort of the more... Uh, I don't, it's not in any way basic, but more sort of practical 
regular, you know, family physician sort of mm. thing. Um, because on the one hand, there's there's incredible allure to people in crisis. And yet, on the other hand, I will say that it's exhausting. At what point in medical school do you have to start to choose? Well, I'm doing my rotations. Yeah. So I am, you know, and, and I will say, too, that they are sometimes complicated because uh, I'm not the most typical student and I, I don't necessarily love hierarchy. And as a young woman in medical school, I'm also expected to be much more deferential and the the guys take up a lot of the airtime and the space. And as a young woman, if you try to claim that space, the older doctors really don't like it. So I'm ever aware of that. I think that I have a pretty profound attunement to people's physical states and to what's happening. So this is a sort of hopefully not tales out of school, but, uh, you know, I teach at Princeton and any number of years ago... Um, Susanna Moore, the writer, came in while I was teaching and whispers in my ear, there's something wrong with Edmund. And she was talking about the writer Edmund White. And I'm like, okay, I'm teaching Susanna. <laughs> and she goes, you need to come. And I go, okay. So I, I excuse myself from class and I go into Edmund White's office. And he's lying on the floor of his office looking not well at all. And he's sweating profusely and so on. And then Susanna says, he's having a stroke. And I said, no, I think he's having a heart attack. <laughs> um, and we call, you know, 911 and so on. And they come. And then I go to the hospital with Edmund, right? And we're in the emergency room. And I'm in the in the cubicle with Edmund and just sort of talking to him and whatever. And the, the doctor comes in and he's like, you know, oh, his heart function isn't very good. And I said, do you have those external defibrillator pads? <laughs> and he goes, great idea. And then he turns out, he goes, do you work here? And I go, nope. <laughs> Um, I teach creative writing at Princeton. <laughs> I teach creative writing at Princeton. But I have this sideline of, you know. So I think part of it is is sort of like reading what's happening and, and looking at the person, you know, both holistically but also very specifically and thinking, okay, if this person's pulse is X, Y, Z, what could happen next, right? Mm. And And what's going on? And so, you know, they put these you know, external defibrillator pads on Edmund. And it's soon enough, sure enough, they're like, you know, shocking his heart back into rhythm and so on. Um, Stop. Oh totally. But, you know, and he's fine, by the way. And he's, he has, and then the, but typical of me too is when Edmund White is in the hospital and I'm going to see Edmund White and so on, I end up picking up some like respiratory bug in the hospital. Edmund, oh, no. Edmund is, gets out. He goes to, you know, whatever. He's fine. He's actually been written so many. I was sick for like two months. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting thing, isn't it, around, I guess, boundaries, I guess, mm -hmm. isn't it? Right. Which I, I'm obsessed with at the moment because I feel like nobody is really taught boundaries. And it's quite difficult to figure them out when you're a grown up. Um, but it is that thing about, you know, how much do you give before you end up hurting yourself? How right. do you find Absolutely. those lines? Yes. Yeah. And I imagine as a doctor, and especially if you were going to go trauma route, right. like the, those boundaries just disappear probably mm -hmm. at that point. Okay. What are your rotations? I really don't like dermatology. Okay. <laughs> I understand that it's important and it's actually relevant to the AIDS patients, but it's not my thing. Okay. So I think I don't really like dermatology. It, seem, it seems to me like dermatology and ophthalmology to me are just, they're not substantive enough. They don't okay. have enough, you know, even though obviously we need our skin badly and we need our eyeballs. Um Pediatrics is fine, but the truth is, sick kids and and worse yet, a dying child. I think is to me is just oh. the most upsetting. 
Um, and so I, I can't possibly think about that. OBGYN, again, profound, serious, not for me. I just... Okay, so we're narrowing so it we're down. So we're narrowing things down. So, okay. Yeah. So, so you're, And you're definitely not going to do surgery. So you general surgery. General I do, surgery. I do really like the brain, but I will also say that, you know, the difficulty of being a woman neurosurgeon is incredibly high. It is a, inc- a terribly sexist field. Again, I still like... Just the fundamental basic practice of medicine. I also really still like emergency, which has emerged now in reality as a specialty that one can specialize in emergency medicine. I I also, yep, absolutely. Um, I like that a lot. And the upside of emergency medicine is that you don't have patients who come back because you're just working a set number of hours. You don't follow up individually with your patients, they are referred to their specialist or their primary care. And that's both an upside and a down, because on the one hand, I realize that I crave knowing what happens to people and and being able to follow them. So that pushes me more into primary care and away from emergency medicine. Um, I'm still kind of, I like psychiatry. I like people with problems. Um, But I also feel a little bit like if that's all that I do, I'm missing something. I feel the the craving for sort of the hands-on physical nature of looking at whether it's test results, whether it's listening to somebody describe their body, whether it's sort of looking at a leg and thinking, is that a blood clot? Is it a what what's going on there? Um, so I'm I'm pretty quickly in a way ruling out psychiatry is still, I would say, very much rooted in the past and in theories and histories that are also inherently sexist and just problematic. So pretty quickly, I'm like, okay, I'm not doing the psychiatry thing. So now I'm sort of toggling between emergency medicine and, and primary care. Um, and I would say what, really what's going to happen to me in the next little bit is that I am going to probably specialize in what they call internal medicine, which is you know being a primary care doctor. But I am going to still work shifts at the hospital in the emergency room. Okay. All right. Yeah. Look at that. We figured it out. That's I know. Great. Isn't that fun? Yes. All right. So you're specializing in internal medicine. You're still doing shifts. Um, and what I mean, infectious diseases is the other thing. Are you still yes. interested in that? Or You know, there is a specialty in infectious disease and travel medicine. And I like infectious disease a lot. If I wasn't going to be a primary care or emergency doctor, that would be a real a real path for me. But I also will say that the things about it that are most interesting are probably research-based. Um, and often, actually, you know, I could still, as an internal medicine uh, practitioner, often people will specialize in infectious disease and internal medicine because it's one of those things like um, uh, pulmonology or something that you don't necessarily, unless you want to work frontline, you know, at a clinic, you're not necessarily going to only see patients with lung problems. Mm. So I can totally, if I want to in the next few years, I can uh, do internal medicine and infectious disease. Yeah. If I do something like that, I'm probably going to go up to New York. There's a few good people working in the field there and and do like a a fellowship in infectious disease. Do we want to say that's what you do? You graduate from Johns Hopkins, you go up to New York. Mm -hmm. Where's your fellowship? I think it's at Cornell, actually. Um, I'm working with a prominent infectious disease specialist, real person, Charlotte Cunningham Rundles, okay. who was from a family of doctors, and she was uh, an infectious disease person. And again, that field right now in our story 
is still very much overtaken by the AIDS epidemic. This is, you know, that that was not a brief moment. It was an extended period. No. Um, but she's also working on various B cell viruses that lead to um, what we talk about as Epstein-Barr or chronic fatigue, which now in our real life in the post-COVID or beginning of post-COVID, but long COVID, is absolutely very much related to inflammatory illness after a viral thing. Mm. So. Yeah. So That's interesting. I didn't know that those things, totally. but that makes complete sense. So we are, I mean, we're at the end of the 80s or the right. start of the 90s, right? So, mm-hmm. And you're doing your fellowship and you're studying with Charlotte. Where are you living in New York? Oh, I'm living in the village. Okay. Yeah. How's your, one thing we haven't talked about, um, and I don't want to dwell on it for too long, but it's just like, what's money like for you? Because you just, you like, how did you get through med school? <laughs> That's a very good question. Mm. So in reality, I have this wonderful grandmother. Ah. And my wonderful grandmother grew up on a dairy farm in North Adams, Massachusetts, the child of immigrants. And she went off to college at 16 and was told she wanted to be a teacher. She was told, oh, no one will ever hire you because you're Jewish. We don't hire, no one hires Jewish teachers. And she also at 15 got her first pair of glasses and she looked up and she saw there were stars in the sky. So imagine for 15 years not knowing there were stars in the sky. (gasps) So this wonderful grandmother of mine moves to Washington, D.C. to take a job, I want to say, before some war. I'm thinking, is it the First World War, around the First World War? She was born in 1900, so probably. Yeah. Um, And sequentially, she ends up bringing her whole family to Washington. And she works first in the government and so on. She's very good at math. She's a bookkeeper. This is all real. And ultimately, in the 1970s, she and a group of women in Washington form the first bank by and for women in the United States. What? Yes, because women in those days, if you got divorced, you had no credit. You couldn't get a loan. You couldn't buy a car. You know, everything was co-signed for by your husband. And they felt that women needed a bank that understood that about women's lives and would give them credit and take care of them. And interestingly, when they were applying for the charter for this bank, it was denied to them because it was deemed that the women, even on the board of the bank, didn't have enough business experience. So my grandmother, in reality, um, when I moved to New York, gave me, I think it was $1,000 a month, which was, you know, a lot of money at that point, um, so that I could actually live in a decent, safish place. Um, And then also, because I still love being a writer, in reality, she loaned me money to buy an IBM Selectric, and I had to pay her back $50 a month. Oh. And it was an $800 typewriter, like in 1985. Wow. Yeah. Did it, like, also make cappuccinos? Like, why was it? They always they were. were. Just it, was, really you know, nice. it was the, the IBM Selectric, you know, is sort of like the, the big typewriter that all businesses used. And actually, this is funny, not funny. The last time I still have it, the last time I had it repaired, the man said, oh, yeah, I was just over at the morgue because they use theirs still for the toe tags. Oh, stop. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> yes. See, the medicine part just doesn't stop, doesn't quit. Okay. So you're in New York. It's the 90s. You're doing your fellowship. Yeah. Um, what comes out of your fellowship? Where are you? So I'm doing my fellowship. I'm going to get the the extra sort of thing in infectious disease and, and travel medicine. Um, even though I'm a kind of a fearful traveler, I'm going to learn what, what vaccinations people need to, you know, have to go to exotic places. Um, I'm meeting lots of different people from all different sort of backgrounds and walks of life. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, But I've also settled into sort of, you know, a new kind of routine about how I 
do this and how how much energy I expend. And there's always that moment in our lives where you're like parsing out your 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 energy. Yes. Um, so I am getting up very early. I get up at five in the morning and I do write for two hours. Wow. Um, yes. And then I get up to the hospital by about seven thirty. Um, take the subway. It's a very New York experience. Um, and I now have that kind of both some swagger, but also a little bit of indifference to things. So things that in the past I wouldn't have been able to just walk past, I kind of do walk past, which both bothers me and makes me feel slightly arrogant, if I'm going to be <laughs> honest. Do you have that in your real life? No. I, I, I notice everything so. in my I real don't think life. So. Yeah. Just That's interesting, yeah. though. Yeah. Do you, does it feel like a kind of blessing and a curse? Because it's quite a lot to hold if you notice everything, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. I, I, if you see too much, it, it's, it's painful and difficult. And then you also, the question is, if you see too much, what do you do? Mm. And so I am the person who's always like, you know, can I help you with that? Can I do this for you? Are you sure you're okay? You know, when you see random crying people on the sidewalks of New York City, which one does, is, is checking in with them. Because I think even if I take them out of their emotional experience for less than a minute, it changes their brains. Because, you know, I am always a doctor. Mm. And so I think even if I just engage with you and say, are you okay? The fact that someone else has acknowledged them changes the moment a bit. I love that. Well, it goes back to that thing of being seen, doesn't it? It's just, you know, we, need, we need a witness yes. to our experience, don't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. Yes. And then what happens? Do you go? Do you start practicing? I get a job working for a family practice in Greenwich Village. And what I really am liking about this new job is that we see everyone from children to adults. And the majority of my patients who come, uh, one of the doctors in the practice is slightly older and so begins to sort of, you know, defer, refer his patients over to me. Um, I like just having people come in and tell me what their lives have been like, what they're doing. Um, I become sort of like I love a checkup because in a way a checkup for me is a very relaxing thing. I'm not looking for anything dire. So just like, oh, can I give you a checkup? <laughs> uh, taking blood pressure, squeezing the thing, and then listening to the air come out and their heart rates. Um but it, it, I have, for the first time, I would say, a little bit of relaxation in the process. I am a doctor. Um, I am paid okay. Mm. Um, I have a chance to just exist a little bit. I'm a little bit, I would say, sort of lazy. You know, on the weekends or the times I'm not working, I'm walking around. I'm looking at things and people. But I'm not. I'm also still a little bit self-protected. I've been, I have a little bit of, I think, early burnout Interesting. Well, yeah. you've really pushed it, haven't you? You've you've essentially double majored all the way through. Absolutely. You've been yes. writing. Yes. You've been, you know, taking care of everybody who lives in John Waters' house. Yes. You know, okay, so this is yes. quite interesting. So you've got a little bit of early burnout because mm -hmm. you've just pushed, 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 pushed. And now it's almost like it sounds like your system is kind of going slow it down. You're, it's We're like in the mid-90s. You've kind of established something. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me about now being a doctor <laughs> and having gone through this obviously very extensive training and so on is it does have a side effect that is somewhat numbing and that part of the way that one survives the training and survives all of the rotations and survives also I would say all of the you know for lack of a word the bullshit right so the politics of it all is to become somewhat inured and somewhat callous about it a little bit and 
that right there is a struggle for me because that is antithetical to who I am. Mm. So then the question for me becomes, how do I reclaim the passion I have for caring for people and the energy to kind of devote myself to to the practice of medicine? Um, so one of the things I do is I do take a job moonlighting at a place called Bailey House, which is a real place that was a home for uh, people with AIDS, for for basically indigent people with AIDS. And even though that's very draining, it's very, very important to me. I really want to hear the stories of these people. I want to know what their lives were like, what they are like. And now it is still a very... Uh, dangerous and destructive illness, but people are living a little bit longer with it. Um, And that's been, on the one hand, uplifting, but there is still no sense yet that it will become what what it is now, which is just a, a chronic illness that people can live with, which I would say evolutionarily in the practice and study of medicine is interesting to me, how we go from an illness that is intense, quickly fatal, we see people die, you know, with, with very early on. And it sort of, in an interesting way, is a little bit like the recent COVID epidemic in our reality, where the people who got it early on got very sick and died. Mm. And increasingly, we are seeing it turning into a chronic illness that is manageable for, for many people. What is also interesting about it and specific to the AIDS epidemic is that people who are not in the populations primarily affected by it, pay no attention to it and think it will not happen to them and cannot happen to them. Um, and I would say in the medical community, I'm both annoyed when I see and hear that because I am aware that any of these epidemics can affect everybody. Um, and again, I think we're seeing a piece of that with monkeypox, right? So the, it is fascinating to look at the ways in which on the one hand we think, oh, in our lifetimes, we're not going to have these epidemics. We're not going to have Spanish flu again. Mm. Um, And yet AIDS came and so many people felt like, okay, well, that wasn't my epidemic. And now we absolutely have had COVID and now we have monkeypox. And I think we're going to be seeing more. And so definitely to me as a physician, that is really interesting. Um, And I'm glad that I did do my fellowship in infectious disease and internal medicine. I'm also terrified because I will tell you something that here we are now in 2022, and I've been doing this now for a long time, and I'm ever aware also that as the climate heats up and the permafrost defrosts, mm-hmm. bacteria and other things that were dormant for hundreds of millions of years are coming back to life, and we absolutely do not have the tools to, to deal with that. You've got a great little bit on that in your book. Too. You're right at the with the doctor talking about that, and you're just sitting there going, oh, no. And that's uh, totally, totally true. Oh, no. It makes me yeah, ill. I know. Well, it literally makes me, I mean, it makes everybody well, ill. Yeah. No, not funny. Right. And what's also interesting about all of that is, you know, on the one hand, you know, penicillin, I believe, was invented weirdly at Oxford. Like, you know, there was, a, you could still go and see, you know, where where it grew in one of the colleges. Um, but the development of medicines now is so much about uh, profit, really. And and so any medicine that is de- deemed to be for what is called a, uh, there's a special word for it that I'm blanking on, but basically a rare disease, a disease that doesn't affect very many people, the research just doesn't happen. 
and orphan, orphan diseases. So they are diseases, right, that are not well-funded, that are not well-researched. And I'm increasingly always interested, of course, you know, in in those on the periphery and those on the edges. And I think that that is going to be, for me, going forward, in in my mid-late career as a doctor, an area of real interest to go back and, and start doing, if not research, I would say I'm always, always reading journals and sort of synthesizing and pulling together information. Mm. I am somewhat doing it in life also, but I'm doing it in earnest in my unlived life career. I also think because um, I've become increasingly, as I've gotten older, interested in this, because of the way that that the um, pharmaceutical industry functions and because of its interest in profit and so on, they don't look at traditional medicinal things. So at Chinese medicine, at herbs and all of these different things. And I would say I increasingly think that there are things that we are not using that we could use to treat illness. Mm. And so I will definitely say that I incorporate some um, alternative treatments in my regular medical practice. I'm an integrated medicine doctor. Of course you are. And I mean, and it really is, you know, it's such a classic sort of Western stance, isn't it? That it's sort of you can only, you know, Western medicine is sort of it, and it's sort of the only thing that makes sense when there's a whole other big chunk of the world that does things really differently. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, why would you not? So that makes total sense. So let's. So you're um, you're practicing. You stay in New York for your practice for your yeah, integrated I'm, medicine. Absolutely, practice? I'm totally in New York. All um, right. And I see a lot of celebrity patients because you know that just it's what, you it's part to of the what stars. happens. I am one of the doctors to the stars. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, your doctor of the stars. We're we're in sort of two thousands somewhere. Yeah. Can yeah. we can we dip briefly into your real life? Because at this point, sure, absolutely. Remember that. Yeah. In real life, you're in New York and you're writing. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I am in New York and I'm writing, and I'm teaching at Princeton, and at this same time, sort of two thousand, two thousand ten, that kind of thing. And I'm working in two thousand. I'm teaching both. I would say, probably. Columbia, NYU, the new school, teaching in a bunch of different places. I've been at Princeton for the last 10 years, so that would take us to 2010. Mm. And the funny thing is, what do I love about teaching at Princeton? I love that the students there are studying everything from math and science and history, and I get to talk to them a lot about medicine Mm -hmm. and what they're going to do. I spend a lot of time with each kid talking about what they want to do, what what opportunities are they interested in, and, and helping connect the dots to get them to the next things, because it's not always obvious, and I have a lot of fun doing it. Let's say we're in the sort of 2010 zone. You're Doctor of the Stars. You're in New York. Right. Actually, no, where are you with the with the burnout work-life situation? I mean, how are you? Well, what's I, your I've approach got a, to... I've got a better balance these days. Okay. And I really will say that that the, you know... It, I had to make it a certain point, so I made a change. I don't accept insurance, um, which means I only see people who can afford to pay. I do a lot of volunteer work otherwise, which is good, but it's sort of on my own terms. Um, so in my practice, I'm not exactly winding my practice down, but I'm 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 doing a much more, I would say for myself, a more thoughtful practice, so I don't see that many patients. Um a lot of sort of integration of mind-body stuff, a lot of looking at, okay, so if if a person is, you know, diabetic and weighs too much, 
um, rather than saying, just go on a diet. The real question is like, okay, so what's going, how does that all evolve? And how do I get a person, both body weight down and their, and, and their blood sugar under control? So I, I, I like that. You know, I, I spend a lot of time sort of more on the front lines and so on. And now I'm really working with people who I would say are middle-aged and older, um, most of whom, by the time they come to me, have sort of also had their own burnout with the medical establishment, with feeling they haven't been seen and heard. If I send someone to a specialist, I follow up because, again, this is a, a world where, I don't know if, if you've noticed, but often I see, this is in real life among my friends, they will be diagnosed with cancer and then the doctor will say, what kind of treatment do you want? And I'm not, yes. Instead of telling people this is what you should do, they will sort of tell you in a way some of what your options are, but there isn't that same sense of guiding somebody. And I will say on the one hand, I don't want to in any way in my fake life as a doctor impose my will upon somebody, but I want to be able to talk them through the implications of a variety of options and, and how one juggles. You know, we all have things that happen. And, 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 and the the complexity of what does it mean to be human and live in a body is really become the core of what interests me. Mm. I just want to pause for that. That's just a really, that's a massive question. And one, I mean, this is a really trite comment, but I mean, because so many of us are so disconnected from our bodies in so many ways, right? We're just sort of brains in front of our laptops or in front of our screens. Um, and in a way, I mean, something something like a pandemic is quite fascinating because it forces you to confront your body in a way that are the realities and the limitations of our bodies. Right. Um, okay. All right. You writing about that? No. No. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So you're Maybe like I will. you're not a writer, as no. in like in your, in your unlived life. Are you writing about that? No, you don't have time. I haven't yet in my own love life, but I think I can see it coming. I can see it on the horizon because there is something on the horizon in both my unlived life and maybe we do the part where they dovetail. It's coming. It's coming. It's happening. Here it's we happening. Go. Here it is. So in March of 2020, right as the pandemic is landing, and they still haven't officially called it yet, I come down with whatever this thing is. In your unlived life. In my lived in life. Your lived life. And you my it. unlived life. They okay. blend right, right there in New York City. I would believe it was about March 13th, 2020. Okay. And like in that book, Madeline. Remember the children's the kids book, one, Madeline? Yeah. Absolutely. Twelve little girls in two straight lines. I wake up in the middle of the light and go, something is not right. <gasps> and I actually, I have a, in my real life, I have a fairly somewhat grown up child who I wake up also and I go, something is not right. And I really don't feel well. And I'm just like, what is going on? And I end up having to call an ambulance and go to the hospital. And I'm the first, that EMS team's first possible COVID case call. So they come to my apartment and they're wearing, you know, trying to put on PPE and and me being me too, because I am the, the noodle head I am. And this is the dovetail. I say, I have to go up to New York hospital. I can't just go to like the local hospital. <laughs> um, and I said, they're expecting me because I have friends who work at this hospital, which is true. You've already called it. Totally. You've phoned ahead like, and yes. booked I'm your like, place. Yes, totally. I'm like, they're expecting me. And I have to talk to a supervisor of the New York, you know, at EMS. And this is before truly the whole EMS system is overwhelmed. This is the very beginnings of it. And they take me up to the hospital and I'm put in an isolation room, you know, in the emergency department. And immediately two IVs go in, one in each arm. And, you know, they're taking all this blood and stuff. And they say, have you been to China? Mm. And I said, no, I've not been to China. And they said, well, we can't test you yet 
because we're not authorized to test for COVID if you've not been to China. Oh. But you should assume you have it. And um, and they said, how long have you had a heart condition? I said, I don't have a heart condition. And how long have you had? I'm like, I don't have that. But my body is obviously very unhappy at this moment. And so they give me tons of fluid and all kinds of things and, and then ultimately say, you can either have somebody pick you up or you can wait six hours for an ambulance to take you home. Oh, my God. And so I'm like, I'll, I'll get someone to come get me. And that moment there is a, a, a turn, in a way, in the course of what happens in the next few months, which is that I leave New York and I have the fortune because I have a little writing cabin, very little, so less than one bedroom, out on Long Island, and I go out there. And I'm really sick for a while. I have a fever of 105.3, I think it is. And then I call my other doctor. It's like, you need to go back to the emergency room. And I'm thinking, that's not a good idea. But because I'm such a noodlehead in my real life, I have all kinds of inhalers. I already have pulse ox things. I have every which thing, including an oxygen concentrator on order and all this stuff. So I am able to take care of myself. And the interesting turn that all of this takes is a return to nature because I'm literally flat out for quite a while. And I'm on the sofa, and I'm able to look out a window, which is different. In New York City, I look out on a brick wall, and I look out a window, and there are trees. And I see these barren trees from March to April to May get leaves on them and come back to life. And that, for me, both as a fake doctor (laughs) and in my imaginary life and in my life as a writer, is profound and pivotal. And I spend a lot of time walking around outside, seeing things. I see whales, real whales. These are not fake whales. In the, in the ocean that's like a mile from this little house. Um, and as much as it's a very deeply intense and isolating period, as we're all in lockdown and so on, I take enormous comfort from nature. Is that making its way into your writing now? You know, I've never written about it, ever. Yeah. Which is really interesting, yeah. because I will say it's something... I mean, truly profound for me and and deep and rich. And I also feel in some ways, it's weird to say, I don't want to find language for it. I want to just feel it and see it and be in it. And I don't want to try to describe it. I feel like we should just stop right there. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. inspired by the way AM feels about decisions. This idea that the window never closes, that we can, if we so choose, embody multiple traits or pursue multiple paths at one point or another within our existing lives. What feels important about it is not being able to accomplish more or, as I know I'd love, never really having to make a decision. It's that when you keep yourself even just a little bit open to alternate paths, you can let in something useful. For AM, I found it really interesting when she became a little more boundaried in the face of the demands of becoming a doctor, that it was just so intense that she felt she had to keep something of herself back. It's a trait she wasn't crazy about. She likes being wide open to others in order to absorb the world into her writing and also to be on hand for whatever friends and family need, medically or otherwise. But I guess I wonder if caring for others in a boundaried way in her unlived life might translate into further care for herself in her actual life. Indeed, by the end of our discussion, AM's paths converged with a severe case of COVID in 2020 
making her both doctor and patient. I like the idea that in a life spent caring for others, Am's unlived self was out there too, in that cabin on the coast, looking after her for a change. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.